There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Welcome to No Mere Mortals Cover to Cover series. The Cover to Cover series is a chronological journey through the moments in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation centered on the main character of Jesus Christ. In 2020, the Lord directed the start of the Cover to Cover series that originally began as weekly installments for Sunday morning youth teachings at a local church. In 2023, the Cover to Cover series will move to being a podcast series and Lord willing will continue to be weekly installments. Genesis chapter 3, starting verse 1, and it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning and I pray that as we open up your word, God, that we would hear your voice speak. God, above all things heard today, would your faithfulness and your love come through? Would we experience you, Lord? Come to know you better and ultimately become more like you. In your son's name, amen. You guys may have a seat. So as we've been making our way through the book of Genesis, and we've seen a couple moments here, and we saw last week that God had made man Adam, to know desire. So Adam and all mankind could understand God's desire for you. God fulfilled Adam's desire at the very first wedding ceremony. As we saw a father, the father, bringing his daughter as a bride to Adam. Jesus tells us in Matthew and also in Mark uh, that all of this, the, the wedding, the marriage, this moment there in the garden that it was God's design of marriage and how he intended it to be. Then Paul tells us in Ephesians that God's design for marriage is an illustration of Jesus and his church, the son and his bride. And just as Adam and Eve were fully exposed and fully vulnerable, there was no shame. And that's the same shameless freedom God has designed in a relationship with Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We saw as God had had made this garden in the land of Eden, he placed man in the garden and with a simple tree, not a bad tree, a tree to serve as a means for Adam and Eve to exercise their God-given ability to choose. And they are offered the same choice you and I are offered today. The choice of trusting God 
to be the definer of what is good and evil, to trust God's word as the source of knowledge, or will you reach out with your own hand and self-define what is good and what is evil? Will you choose your own knowledge apart from God's word? You have the same choice today and every day that Adam and Eve had in the garden just some 6,000 years ago. And with that, we now come to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now I want this to be clear. The serpent mentioned here in this chapter is not a creature of the animal kingdom. And the description of the serpent even puts him categorically above the animal kingdom, particularly focusing on ability. Notice that the description of the serpent is in regard to his ability or, and even his ability to function. The Hebrew word for the serpent year, here is nahash. Now, uh, a very smart guy by the name of, of Michael Heiser, he's a PhD who, who has his, his doctorate in focusing on spiritual beings of the Bible and is a scholar of ancient literature, points out something very interesting and, and kind of a, a triple entente or a wordplay happening with this word Nahash. See, because depending on the focus and the context, the word Nahash can give different meanings. It can actually take on the form of a noun, a verb, and an adjective. As an adjective, it, it can mean shining, mostly in regards to, to like shiny brass, some 140 times connected with the shiny brass instruments of judgment or of the shiny brass serpent that Moses would lift up in the desert that Jesus would ultimately declare was an illustration of his final judgment of sin on the cross. As a verb, it, it takes on the meaning of deceiver. And as a noun, it means serpent. But now Heiser also makes another very excellent point when studying the spiritual creatures of Scripture. Whenever we read about their features... It's not anatomical. So many times, and, and there's fun illustrations, but people can get caught up thinking that they're given, being given an, an anatomy lesson and then draw certain absurdities based on a misunderstanding of what's being presented. It's not an anatomical description, but rather it is a description of their function and abilities. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, we read of these seraphim or serpentine creatures around God's throne. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 and 3 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in this very first verse of chapter 3, we're introduced to this Nahash who is categorically above the animal kingdom in function and ability. So who is this Nahash, chapter 3? Well, if you look at Nahash the noun, we see the serpent. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Ezekiel chapter 28, describing this fallen angel, would also state that this entity was in Eden. If you look at Nahash the verb, John tells us of this deceiver, 
John chapter 8, verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in, truth, in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. When we look at Nahash, the adjective, the shining, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 tells us, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades or transforms as an angel of light. The point I want to make completely clear as we move through here is that this is not some Disney animated movie where we're seeing a woman talk with animals. And I wanted to dispel the fantasy often put on Scripture by the deceiver himself. He wants you to look at these moments in Scripture and think them to be childish and foolish. So this is not a snake. This is Nahash, the Satan, the devil, Lucifer, Day star, shining one, Halal bin Shahar. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? His first word spoken, doubt God's word. Did God really say? And what's interesting, not only that, is not only is he, he bringing doubt this Nahash, is that then he took what God said in the positive. I have given you every tree that is good. And he takes God's word, twists it, and says it in a negative as though God said that they couldn't do something. God told them, I have given you every tree that is good. And he starts right off, wait, didn't God say he takes and focus right on the negative? What you see so often here is this is, this is very similar to what's called a, a straw man tactic is where people will take God's word, twist it, lift up in an absurdity, and then attack that instead of standing on exactly what God's word says. And it's exactly what Satan does, and it's exactly what continues on today. Verse 2, it says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, some people go into that, you know, you shouldn't add to God's word, take away from God's word. I don't know if that's what's happening. I don't know in this time if, if God had given, you know, a full instruction to Adam. This is just me being a guy, not being the most patient when someone's asking you instruction. And so Eve comes to him and goes, okay, so we can eat of all the trees, but of that one, that one we can't. And Adam just goes, just don't even touch it, okay? Just don't even touch it. And so here's Eve having a place of just kind of not, not going directly to God's word, but what somebody told her God's word said. And there is always a danger in that. It says, And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Doubt God's word. And now he's straight up calling God a liar. You have to understand the shock that must be going through Eve for the first time in her life. Someone's saying, wait, God's word may not be true. And now, wait, my father's a, a liar? And he says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's so sad about the temptation in this moment is what did we hear and see about the way they were created Adam and Eve made in the very image of God. Living souls that God had formed with his hand, their body, spoke their soul 
into existence and breathed the spirit of life into their life. They were, they were in perfect harmony with a perfect image of, and yet here there, there's something becomes of a, of a specialty, of a, of a place of position and authority. Well, where did the devil get this nasty strategy? It's the very thing that caused him to fall. See, in Isaiah chapter 14, chapter, uh, verses 12 to 15 says, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. That is translated, day star, shining one, Halel ben Shachar. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Verse 15, and I want you guys to catch this, says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. What is he presenting to Eve? The very thing that caused him to fall. The very choice they had. Will you trust God and who he is and who he says he is? Or do you want to ascend to his throne? Do you want to be your own God of your life and say, No, I'm going to make the decisions of what's right and wrong. That's what Lucifer did. It's what caused his fall, and that is the choice he presents now to Eve. And I want you to know this because 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 tells us, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I do not want you to be ignorant of his schemes, of his devices, and this is the same thing that he has been using since the very beginning of creation, that Nahash of old, to come to you and say, did God really say? Did God really say that he made the world in six days? Did God really say that it was just man and woman? Did God really say that only the marriage bed is undefiled? Did God really say that only he is the ruler of the world? And then after coming to us to, to try and get us to doubt in that way, he straight up just calls God a liar. Then ultimately, to blaspheme God's character, he builds the straw man up, he tears it down, and then says, see, so God's obviously a liar. It says in verse 6 that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate. John would tell us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. See, Eve, tempted of the things of Satan's world. The lust of the flesh, that she saw that it was, it was desirable for something. It says it was, it was good for food, the lust of the flesh. It was pleasing to the eye, the lust of the eyes, and that it was able to make one wise, the pride of life. To prove my point that Satan hasn't changed his tactic and hasn't needed to because we continually fall for it, is I want to show you the greatest success against those tactics seen as he brought the exact same tactics against Jesus when he tempted him in the desert. After Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and Satan comes to him, Matthew chapter 6, and, and Satan starts off by once again taking God's word and twisting it and he looks at Jesus and says, 
just turn these stones to bread. <coughs> the lust of the flesh. Look, look, he takes them out to this high top and says, look at all these kingdoms of the world that I will give you if you just bow down to me. The lust of the eyes. And he tells them, throw yourself off of this cliff because if you throw yourself off, the angels are just going to swoop down. They won't, they won't let your life be damaged. The pride of life. He tries all three of the exact same tactics against Jesus. And in all three of these temptations, Jesus overcomes by answering and quoting accurately and concisely the word of God. And just for a fun side note for those who like to go through, he quotes all of them from Deuteronomy. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 tells us, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And in James chapter 4 verse 7, it says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So many quote the second half and misquote that. They just say, resist the devil. And what strength? By yours? What strength do you have? Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. That is why James says, therefore submit to God. Stand on his word. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Turn on verse 6. She, it says, she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. Shame entering into a beautiful relationship that God had made. We ended chapter 2 that they were vulnerable and exposed and they weren't ashamed. And now a husband and wife who are in perfect harmony, rooted around Christ and his word, out of disobedience now look at each other as opposition and distance themselves. What's sad is, is, is we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, that it says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Adam wasn't deceived. He wasn't, he wasn't going back and forth with this serpent, this fallen angel. His wife offered him, and he straight up chose disobedience. And then it says in verse 7 that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now, I don't know quite when the effect of Adam's sin affected the entire world, but it makes it clear how pretty instantaneous death entered in is by disobedience, they died. And I want to make this point so clearly because I have made this point over and over. You are not this physical frame walking around. This is your body, your spacesuit, by which the means, your spirit and soul interact with others. And then until we place our faith in Christ that we are spiritually dead in our disobedience. And so when God says that you died that day, it doesn't have anything to do with physical because the error would once again to look at the physical anatomical world and say, this is reality. God goes, this is not reality. There is a truth. You are spirit. And that day, Adam and Eve died who they were, that soul died and then as we do in our disobedience they took fig leaves guys i i don't know a whole lot about this stuff but from from the description they give is, is that when people go and pick figs that they wear long sleeves because the, the 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 leaves are are prickly and sticky they're like nature's post-it notes and, and adam and eve use that to stick all over their naked bodies 
That's what they tried to cover. And so a perfect example, when we try to deal with our sin, we just make an awful, uncomfortable, rashy mess. Verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in garden in the cool of the day. I want you guys to catch this moment. They have, they have disobeyed, rejected God's command. And it says he comes walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. This is not the clouds turned black, lightning came down, and God comes screeching in with a hammer saying, oh, I'm going to pound you. This is him coming in in the best part of the day, walking in. It says, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, how many of you guys have ever played hide-and-seek with a toddler? I've had quite the joy recently in my life. Uh, if you've ever played hide-and-seek with a toddler, they don't always quite grasp the concept of what hiding means. And so sometimes you, they'll just kind of like, literally there'll be like a stool there, and they just kind of, well, as long as I can't see you, I think I'm hidden. And, and clearly, I, I remember once, literally, I was playing hide-and-seek with a friend years ago, and he, he stood in the middle of a field and just covered his face. And you can look at that and you go, this is ridiculous. So if you're ever playing, you go, this is Adam and Eve. This is Adam and Eve right now. They are children playing hide and seek as God comes walking in and they think that the one who spoke this world into existence, they can hide behind a tree. They're like a toddler who's, well, as long as I can't see you, I guess you can't see me. And as silly as that sounds, is that any different than thinking that because the lights are down, because our faces are glued to a computer screen or a phone, that somehow we've been able to hide ourselves and our sin from God. That we convince ourselves that somehow that if, if we're just doing this in the backseat of a car, that somehow my sin is hidden. It's just as foolish as the toddler playing hide and seek because Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 tells us, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But in this moment, this heartbreaking moment, Satan has achieved all that he wanted because man has chosen to distance himself from God. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Again, he doesn't come in, tire screeching, lightning dropping, thunder roaring. He doesn't come in as an angry, vengeful God. He comes in in the cool of a day of a heartbroken father going, where are you? Same thing he's asking to every single one of us in this room. Not because God is somehow lacking the information, but he asked the question to draw us back to him. Man has chosen to hid, and God's first response to man wanting to pull away is to draw him back. Where are you? What are you trying to hide from me for? What are you distancing yourself from? I, I, I see it. And he calls, and in this the consistency of God, he calls, but allowing man to make the choice to respond. Verse 10, So he, Adam, said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
let me just make this also very clear. Stating your sin and being sorry you got caught, that's not repentance. That's just stating facts. To repent is to turn from what you're doing to how you're living. This is no different than, again, a child who has been told not to get into the snack drawer, and they get into the snack drawer, and you call their name out, and they go, sorry. Are you sorry that you did something you're not supposed to do, or are you just sorry you got caught? Adam right here is just sorry he got caught. And God answers, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Again, I, I, just the amazing, faithful patience of God. So awesome, giving Adam yet another chance. Because guys, here's the truth. Here is the lie that you have been told today. Love darkness. The way to escape guilt is just to convince yourself that what you're doing is okay when the truth is no matter what the garbage that's been spread since the 1960s because we have seen over and over. 1960s, this was a thought among psychologists is that just, just love yourself. Love your, the problem is that people are telling your evil deeds. Here's the irony. In the 1960s, when the number one professions for suicide, psychologists, today, you're told, self-define, you say what's right and wrong, love your sin. It's just because the world has put it on you. And if that was true, then youth suicide rates should be plummeting and instead they're skyrocketing. Because the truth of the matter is, God calls us to a place of repentance to say, this thing, condemnation is loving darkness. You carry the gate, the guilt and the shame and weight. And God says, I have, de I have designed a shameless free relationship and you're not meant to carry this what have you done and he doesn't say it to say because i'm going to punch you in the face he says it because i want you to unload that he's the father who loves you and says bring that to me i'm here to tell every single person in this room if someone has convinced you that the first thing you need to do is run from people to distance yourself to get away from god it is a lie from the nahash that what you should always know is that you can go to the people who love you and care for you and that they will take you in as a loving father here in the garden is saying, yes, I want you to tell me what you did wrong because I am here to love you and to protect you and care for you. You are not supposed to carry the, wilt, the guilt and shame and all of its heaviness. That you can come to him and unload that to not let this world convince you of otherwise. And you will know the schemes because you will doubt God's word. You will try and cover it up with all kinds of irritants. And then you ultimately try and distance yourself from God. But you have a faithful, loving God who shows up in the cool of the day to say, where are you? What have you done? Verse 12, then the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. What, what a man. We are truly the sons of Adam and, and daughters of Eve. His first step after, after God gives him a second chance to repent is he blames God, the woman you gave me, and then the bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. He throws her under the bus. The woman you gave me. Do you see the result of what disobedience leads to? Distance from God and then hurting the people who are supposed to mean the most to you that you're there to love with. 
The sad thing is, it's the same thing that many of us do today. We disobey God, we try and cover up our sins, we try and hide from Him, and then when everything just falls apart, we blame God. God, how could you let this happen? Let's go back to what the Word says. But more than that, to see the consistent character of God who comes to you in the cool of the day saying, where are you? I already saw it. Come, come be with me. Unload that guilt. Tell me what you've done. Verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, uh, the, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Man, I want you to catch this, because you were called to be leaders, and she followed the lead of her husband. Blame others. Whether you want to step up and be it or not, you are the leaders of this world. You set the tone. You set the pace. And when you choose to take a back seat to that leadership, all it takes is other people going, well, I guess then I can just blame God as well. Verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Remember, I asked you guys to hold on to verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 14. Because again, we're not talking about a snake from the animal kingdom. We're talking about this fallen angel, this deceiver. And he was told that you're going to crawl in the dust. Just as he was told in Isaiah that you will be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Job chapter 17, verse 16, it says, Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? We shall have rest together in the dust. He resists the proud. You want to try and step up to his throne? God says, I have no problem putting you back down in the dust. Verse 15, and this is where we're going to end this morning, because this is where I want you guys, of all things, please, of all the things we've talked about, look at this moment, because this is the very first prophecy in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall, or you shall bruise his head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's how it says. I'm going to read that again because this is a really important verse and I want you guys to hear it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, right here, after all the rebellion, after all the mudslinging of Adam and Eve, God pronounces the fix to the dead spirit. He just told us our redemption plan and to know that God's grace is greater than any of the sin of your life. And that is always the truth. Because in this moment, God has just declared, I have a plan, and it is centered around a wounded victor. The application for this morning is right there in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is, yes, the story most known as the fall of man, but I'm here to tell you that it should be titled The Grace of God Restores 
fallen man. Because in this moment, God says, I see your problem. I see your distance, and I want a relationship with you. I want to call you to me. You can unload your guilt, and I have a plan. As we get ready to close out this morning, I'm going to close out with a a quick video. Um, So hopefully this will work out, and then then we're going to come together, and we're going to take some communion. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. 
But then all of a sudden he comes back. And Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. And we'll close this time out. Father, we just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you that you consistently seek us out, though we would actively try and hide ourselves from you, though we may not even be truly sorry in the moment that you have promised that you were just, you leave the 99 to come after the one. Thank you, God, that I am one of those ones. And that for anyone here who has placed their faith in you, we can have the confidence to know that you have made us righteous, not because of our work, but because of the finished work of your victory of the cross. So Father, would you just give us the encouragement and the strength to live every day as a day of thanks that, Lord, none of us would fall to the schemes of the devil who would want us to doubt you, question your goodness, and God, try and take care of things on our own and, and hide. But Lord, again, thank you that though we may be unfaithful, you are always faithful. We love you and praise you. In your son's name, amen. The Cover to Cover series is part of No Mere Mortal. The No Mere Mortal ethos derives from the biblically grounded and inspired work of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. You can find more No Mere Mortal content, including the Cover to Cover series, on our website at nomeremortal.org. Follow us on Twitter, Truth, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, and most major podcasting services. Subscribe, follow, like, comment, leave a review, and share. The music you've heard has been provided by Sicko. That's C-I-K-K-0. And you can find him at YouTube at SickosBeatSuck797. My name is Bryce, and you are no mere mortal.